0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.
1: Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing from step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up?
0: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you doing there? It is podcast time. Myself and John are just recovering from our Sleaford Mods gig. You enjoyed that, my man? I could
2: see you. Jump seeker! You were pogoing up the front. In the mosh pit. In the mosh pit. What a great... Do you know what? It was just great to be out. It was great to be out. At a super spreader gig, but... I know,
0: it's going to... You will feel like if they come back to say, that was it. That was the moment. It <laughs> all took off.
2: Well, first gig in two years, it was brilliant.
0: Yeah, and it's also nice to be in the Olympia. I'm... Looking forward to Olympia, looking forward to going back to Vicker Street. You know, all these venues that are, mm. you know, we were in Vicar Street a couple of weeks ago for Lucy doing a supporting gig, and it's just nice to be out and there. And let's hope, let's hope that we're not locked down again over the next couple yeah. of weeks.
2: Well, we've got a gig to do in the Olympia as well. We do.
0: We have a gig to do dates in the Olympia. Dates to be announced. Dates, dates to be announced. An actual fact, John and I are going to, definitely in 2023, 22. 22. <laughs> what, what year is it? I don't even know. I shouldn't be let out on my own. Anyway, we're going to do a series of podcast events. My thing is to actually travel around the country. I don't know about you, but yeah, I would, I'm totally up for that. We'll do a few gigs around the country and we'll see it maybe in pubs, maybe small ones, not big, not, not the Olympia
2: or the Picker Street. Like we're not going to do stadium gigs Yeah, a place we
0: could actually fill like with our family and a couple of mates and get a few people off the street and go on Twitter, give out a few free tickets, all that sort of stuff. So what are we talking about today? We're going to talk to your favorite subject, China. China. (laughs) Over the last couple of days, I don't know if you've noticed, there has been the announcement of what the Americans call, this is really a Sputnik moment, right? It's a hypersonic, now this is all beyond me, Mm. some hypersonic, which obviously something that goes at more than the speed of sound, missile test that the Chinese have done. Which the Americans they did it last July. But the Americans are only now talking about it this week, right? Did this uh, take the Americans by surprise? I've no idea because I wasn't talking to the Americans. Let's give them a call sometime. Was, Hello, Americans. <laughs> it's uh, the Dave podcast here. Well, yeah. No, but the idea is that what the American generals are now calling a possible Sputnik moment, and Sputnik was in 1957. When the Americans thought they were miles ahead in the Cold War, they thought the Russians had very basic tec- technology and that NASA had this extraordinary technology. Yeah. And of course, the big symbol was putting a man in space. And suddenly the Russians put this Sputnik up into space in 1957. And with the, the Am- dog. And the, With the dog. And the Americans are freaked out by it because they realize the Russians are farther ahead yeah. than they are. And then the Russians doubled down on that by putting Yuri Gagarin up yeah. into space. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and... But that galvanized the Americans into a massive space race, which culminated, of course, with the landing on the moon. Mm. JFK, you know, the the, the moon shot. Well, did they? Yeah. <laughs> or did,
2: do your homework. <laughs> I'm on the
0: internet all the time.
2: Do your homework. Do you... You know the way... Th- there's a huge movement, as you know, of conspiracy theorists that say that they never landed on the moon. Oh, I know there is. And, and one of the guys confronted Buzz Aldrin a while ago and Buzz Aldrin just took him out, hit him a dig with an almighty left hook, and like, and arm arm must be about floored. ninety. <laughs> must be brilliant! It was a brilliant. Was brilliant. Look that up on well, YouTube. Well, it's great. Well,
0: the thing is, it's like all the conspiracy theories is, is, is always the, in parentheses. You know, when you say, "Well, well, I think this is the way the work is." Do your homework, an Angry Man, yeah, yeah. in box room. Do your own research, Angry Man <laughs> in box room in Ashford. I'll tell you what the world's <laughs> going on. Anyway, but the Sputnik won't. So, I want to talk to you about China because. What we're seeing is through the disappearance of that tennis player, right? We had the disappearance of the K-pop stars, the disappearance of the afternoon TV stars, all this sort of thing. The culture They're only the ones
2: we know about. Yeah,
0: and we spoke about this about seven or eight weeks ago. And what we see now, again, is this moment where the Americans are thinking the Chinese are far ahead of us Mm. in this hypersonic technology. And what it means, it doesn't mean that the Chinese are, you know, going to start anything major. But what it does mean is that the Chinese have, in a way, stolen the march on the Americans in the technological space. And that's a big, big deal for the Americans because the Americans always prided themselves uh,
2: on being further ahead than everybody else. Yeah, and it's the thing that really is confusing about this is that we're always led to believe that the CIA and the Americans are so on the game, finger on the pulse and all that they've been cut out so often, so often.
0: So often, and maybe, um, you know, so so what we'll do is, but remember, remember I interviewed John Brennan, the head yes, of the CIA? yeah, yeah. And before that, I read a book about the CIA, and it was just just to prepare for the interview, and it was hilarious. It's like the comedy of errors that is the CIA. I mean, just right. really hilarious stuff. Like, it is true that they, you know, that they tried to get, freaking, you know, missiles into cigars to blow up yeah, Fidel yeah. Castro, mad stuff like that. Anyway, we will talk about this, but I want to talk about China, and I also want to talk about in the context of something I read earlier this week by a guy called Noah Smith, who we've had on the show. Yes. He's got a very, very good Substack blog. You, you pay for these Substack blogs, but it's really very interesting. And he was making the point that maybe, maybe the Chinese growth spurt has come to an end, right? And if it has come to an end, what does that mean for China? So almost everybody listening to the show will have been schooled in the idea or been lived and been brought up against the background of something amazing is happening in Asia. Mm. And that amazing thing is the rapid, rapid economic development of China. And then the question, economists have always thought, like, how does this work? How do economies grow and how do they keep growing? Mm. And this is one of the huge questions in what's called developmental economics, uh, but also, it should be in all macroeconomics. So, if you look at history, John, this extraordinary thing that nothing really happens, there's a, there's a thing called the Madison series, which traces GDP back to the time of Christ, which is pretty. Oh, yes, yeah, you mentioned amazing, that before, right? yeah. And it's, a, it's an extraordinary piece of statistical work. But what you see is that nothing really happens to global income until about 1750 or 1760. And then what they have is this, what they call the hockey stick. You know, the, uh, an American ice hockey stick yes. is very, very small. And then it's a sudden zip. It's like the, the Nike, just the whoosh, yeah. right? the, the whoosh. It's like the COVID whoosh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, now, don't be mentioning it. We're going to do a non-COVID piece because you're a super spreader. You and the Sleaford mods. To come back to the models, right? To come back to economics, right? That how does an economy grow? Why why does an economy do nothing for ages and then whoosh? Yeah. And there's two competing theories. Well, there's not competing. One theory, I kind of subscribe to more, but it's still an outlier. The main economic theory is what's called the solo growth model. John.
2: Right, Hans Solo.
0: <laughs>
2: not Hans fucking Solo. Robert Solo, Nobel Prize winner. Oh, right, the brother, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Nobel Prize winner for economics, right? And the solo model is basically that economic growth comes from... What they call capital formation which is the amount of capital you put into the economy the labor force growth okay how significant your labor force is right so you basically have two sides of the productivity of capital so mm-hmm. new machinery think of the difference between a tractor and 10 lads digging a ditch right yeah 10 lads digging a ditch with a spade right with shovels it takes 10 lads to dig the ditch you get one lad in a tractor you've one lad digging the same ditch therefore the productivity of the person, the human, goes through the roof. So that's when you throw capital at it. Second idea is if you can throw capital at the problem and you have lots of labor, then suddenly you get huge productivity growths. Those productivity growths are called technological progress in economics. Once you get those two together, you can actually then do what they call in economics a production function, which is that you can actually plot out how much the production of the economy can increase if you get the labor right and if you get the capital right. So that's the, not Hans, Robert Solow theory of how economies grow. And so loads and loads of development economies and developing economies have always tried to figure out how do we get to this holy grail? So the first economy to do this is the british economy in the industrial revolution okay okay and that goes miles ahead of everybody else and then you get the german economy and the continental european economies catch up with it then the american economy does it and then in terms of huge big growth speed the chinese is the other
2: yeah. huge story yeah. so you
0: get britain's first you get continental europe after that led by germany or at least around germany then you get the united states and then in this last 40 years you have china so that's a very, what I would call, hydraulic model of levers. You know, imagine what I used to call hydraulic Keynesianism. You pull this right. lever, that happens, this lever. So you just say, so basically, if you get all the capital and all the people, you put them together, something happens. Yeah. Then you have the Schumpeterian view.
2: Right. And, and we Schumpter- like Schumpeter. We
0: do like Schumpterian. The Schumpterian view is basically that it doesn't really matter how many people and how much capital you have. You have to have this spark of innovation. And that comes from entrepreneurs, people taking a risk, people deciding to have a go. And innovation tends... I mean, it's something we talked about last week or the other day. Innovation tends not to start at utopia and work backward. It starts this incremental difference. Mm, yeah, don't, yeah. don't let the, the perfect bully the good. So basically, if you think of innovation, innovation is an iterative, almost evolutionary process of trial and error, of error, experimentation, yeah. of little small... Changes made to the way the economy works, all of which create better products. All those products create their own productivity, and they raise living standards that way. So basically, Schumpeter says it's all about human genius, endeavor, and trial and error. Okay, that's innovation, the innovative-led economy. The more traditional economic view is that it's actually about having capital, having labor, and they spark together. Now, I think it's obviously somewhere in the middle. It's like, you know, the idea... Yeah, yeah like the, most things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the idea of you've got the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis, right? A bit, bit of Hegel there, John. Right,
2: yeah, yeah. A yeah, Hegel, throwing nice. in a bit of old
0: Hegel, man. <laughs> okay, so Hegel was always basically arrive at progress through, you have a thesis. Yeah. Like, this is what I believe, and then you've got the antithesis, you've got the contrary to that, and the synthesis is the bit in the middle that actually you move forward. And I think that's probably more the point. The question now for the Chinese is... Has that combination of Schumpterian evolution and innovation, plus the Hans Solo, Robert <laughs> Solo approach to long-term growth, has it now reached the end of its lifetime? And yeah. The reason I say that is there are many, many countries that kind of got rich quickly and then plateaued and never got rich again. Yeah. Latin America being the great example, and maybe some Asian tigers as well, but certainly Latin American countries that grew incredibly quickly in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. Like, for example, you take a country like Uruguay. Uruguay was the sixth richest country in the world in 1921.
2: Yeah. Uruguay, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: Argentina yeah. was seventh or eighth, but Uruguay was called... And that's called... why
2: Montevideo is such a, a fantastic city. It is a fantastic city.
0: It is a fantastic city. And I visited it, and it's an amazing place. And... They used to be called the Switzerland of Latin America. They had a welfare state. They had a universal franchise. Right. They had a okay. universal welfare state in the 20s, right? Yeah. They had free health, free education, free everything, right? And it was one of those extraordinary stories that it grew really quickly and then just plateaued out. And it plateaued out for a combination of, a vi- of reasons. One was geography. Yeah. One was bad policy. And one was the fact that the rest of the world wasn't waiting around, that we and the rest of the world... Just remind me, why did they grow? What was their main, the main,
2: main thing? Okay, this, is, this is, goes
0: back to an innovative spark. Uh, in 1780, no, in 1888, Yeah, a ship left the port of Buenos Aires, okay, the river plate, called the Frigidaire. Right. And it was
2: the first ever refrigerated ship. Ah, oh, right. Yes. So this yeah, is yeah.
0: crucial to the history of Latin America. So it was a, it was basically a floating fridge. Yeah. Right. And what you could do with floating fridges is you could pack meat and freeze it, go across the Atlantic and then sell it. Suddenly, Argentina and Uruguay became Tipperary and... It just open up the whole Wexford. world to them. Yeah. Yeah. So you get this massive drop in agricultural prices. Food prices in the West, but the fact that they were making things for almost nothing, it was actually half nothing, right? They were yeah. still making money. So you get this two things happen at one time. You get a total and utter trauma in European agriculture, number one, but a huge boost in Latin American agriculture. So money flows into Latin America and that's how they got rich. Right. And then, of course, a huge amount of Italian mainly, Spanish, but also Central European migrants followed the money to latin america and then you get the second the shuntarian idea so first you get the solo idea that you get this capital kick yeah but the second idea was the shuntarian idea those migrants came in and they do what migrants always do they're more innovative yeah.
2: they try they, they actually innovate they're there to do something They get to do on something
0: with it. to get on with it. so you get these two things at one time and that's why argentina but particularly uruguay became this sort
2: of pearl in, the, in in Latin America. So take me back to China and if they are at the end of this cycle, what what does that mean? Well,
0: let's go. I'll tell you what. So so just the thesis is that China has had this 40-year growth like Japan, like Uruguay, maybe even like Ireland. I mean, we've had this growth spurt. We've got to figure out a True, new yeah. we've got to figure out a new idea now, you know. What what's the next uh, trick that we can have? However, with respect to the Chinese, the fear now is that China is faced with these difficulties. One is lots of debt, which we're going to talk about in a minute. The other one is they're they're trying to move from coal to non-coal electric production. But that means they might have an electricity deficit. They have a demographic deficit. And in general, there's a sense that maybe the effervescence that drove the Chinese forward in the last 40 years has kind of, in a way, spent. And they've now figured something out. So that may explain everything we are seeing with respect to military threats, Taiwan, hypersonic, all that sort of thing. So, John, to get a good handle on this, let's talk to George Magus, former chief economist of UBS, uh, ex-colleague of mine, and he's a man who knows a thing or two about China. I'm now joined by an ex-colleague. I mean, we're going back. Back, back a long, long time into the dark days when Blur and Oasis were battling out (laughs) as to who was going to be the most popular band in the UK, mid-late 1990s, the former chief economist of UBS, George Magnus. George, how are you?
3: I'm very good. You make it sound awful. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty good in those days. It was good times. uh, They were
0: good times. They were good times. Uh, George, uh, let us talk about China. You've spent... Since you and I worked, you've devoted, it seems to me, an increasing amount of your time with your red flag book, with your, your involvement in China, in actually getting to understand China, what's going on, et cetera. What I'd like to ask you is a couple of questions, right? This morning, or like, I won't say this morning because this is going to go out on Thursday. In the last couple of days, we've seen the Americans warning about what the Chinese call was a hypersonic missile experiment that the Chinese uh, orchestrated a couple of months ago over the South China Sea. What is going on there? What is going on in China? And, and, And what significance does military buildup have at all?
3: Well, how do we begin to answer that question? I mean, I think as everybody pretty much knows, I mean, there's obviously an arms race going on, And um, for a variety of different reasons, I think um, the Chinese government under Xi Jinping, I mean, things have changed, I have to say. We may come to this in the course of our discussion, but things have changed a lot since he came to power in 2012. But what the Chinese fear is, I mean, they they constantly talk about, quote, hostile foreign forces, unquote. They could be in Hong Kong. They could be trying to create trouble in Xinjiang province, which is the province where a lot of the Uyghur Muslims live and who have been the subject of a lot of um, discussion about human rights and so on. Or it could be, uh, you know, in any other context. And, um, you know, for various reasons, the Chinese fear containment. They have a big chip on shoulder about uh, oppression in the 19th century, uh, which they kind of call the sort of century of humiliation for them. Lots of things have happened. I mean, i Going to give you a very very quick potted history yeah, here. Yeah, let's go. For I it. mean, the, the the combination of the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, with Tiananmen Square, which happened in the same year, and probably just sort of geopolitical things going on at the time, kind of persuaded the Chinese at that time that the pendulum of history was beginning to kind of click back towards China and towards the East and then obviously the great financial crisis in 2008 and the pandemic have basically convinced them that this is their time so for all the problems that china has and it, and it does have some i mean the government basically feels that they're marching with history that the east is rising the west is declining as they commonly say in their rhetoric. And the military buildup and the experimental missiles, which has been the subject of um, a lot of uh, kind of newspaper coverage, including this hypersonic test, is really, I think, uh, another manifestation of, you know, we are a great power, and we are going to be a great power, and everybody needs to watch out.
0: Okay so i mean the tide of history is on their side
3: right and, and i
0: kind of get that and, I, and it is interesting when you look at when you look back and you look at the opium wars and the humiliation and all that sort of stuff that china was really humiliated for the guts of a century and they feel that uh, and now they feel their time has come can i ask you as an economist let's just look let's say we take japan and china so japan goes through this extraordinary 40 year growth period where the GDP numbers are extraordinary. Export sales are extraordinary. The capital intensity of the economy becomes significant and outwits the Europeans or the, the, the Americas, the West. And then it kind of slows down. The economy slows down. Is there a sense, and I was reading a guy called Noah Smith. I don't know if you know him. He's an American commentator, very, very good. And he had a piece, I think, the other day saying, you know, is the Chinese growth story not just slowing down, but just becoming normal? And if it is, so they get 3 or 4% growth per year. Uh, if it is, what does that mean? What's your sense of that, that the, the great spurt of China, the extraordinary last 30 years is kind of coming to an end and they've got to deal with maybe a more normal economy from now on?
3: Yeah. Uh, so my, my view is a bit like that. I, I think we are at peak China, for want of okay. a better phrase. Interesting. Uh, so this, I mean, what it achieved, I mean, no one can be, no one should be churlish about it. You know, they've accomplished extraordinary feats in chalking up Basically, I mean the longest period of you know double digit growth that any country has that we know about. So fine, I mean the history has been exceptional, but I don't think you can extrapolate this like it was on a spreadsheet because development, you know, doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It happens because certain things happen and you get certain things right. And if you want, we can talk about all those things as well. If you want, but actually, I think that um, since the financial crisis. You know, China has been really kind of wedded to this high investment, high saving, high debt model of growth. They didn't have the high debt before. They had the high saving and the high investment. But the debt is new, relatively speaking. And there are a number of things that have basically started to kind of turn from tailwinds into headwinds. So the the overhang of debt, you know, somebody has to pay for the debt eventually. It doesn't just disappear. Uh, because, George, banks can, I, have- can I stop
0: you there? Can you give me a sense of just the magnitude of the debt? Because you know, there's debt and there's and there's debt. Okay, so can you give me a sense of what what sort of debt? We start in, let's say, 2008 with almost zero. I'd say consumer debt or internal debt. Where, where are we now?
3: Yeah. So in 2000 debt, in 2000 in debt, in 2010, <laughs> uh, China. I mean, China's households had about two trillion dollars worth of debt, mostly mortgage debt. Okay. It's now about 10 trillion, right? That's five wow. times in a decade, basically. In national terms, if you think about households, local and provincial governments who are, who are very big in China in terms of being the agents of delivering economic growth, and state-owned enterprises, and uh, the property sector, and so on. So in national terms, debt to GDP is about 320% compared with say 100% in 2000. Okay. Uh, and GDP is very very much bigger today than it was obviously then. So okay in and of itself that number doesn't really mean anything because you know it doesn't tell us whether the country what you know what the nature of that debt is whether it's productive or not productive but we do also know from other economic indicators that more and more of this debt has been used to finance unproductive investment. There's lots of, you know, local governments, state enterprises, property companies having difficulties repaying their debt or even meeting their debt obligations in terms of interest payments. And there's a lot of wasted GDP, basically. So, for example, you know, in most countries, accounting regulations don't allow you to carry bad investments for Longer than a period of time. Eventually you have to write it off. But in China, you don't have to do that. You can just kind of extend and pretend almost ad infinitum. And because the government owns all the banks, basically, there's no real kind of recognition of bad debt in the way that we would normally understand it. So eventually, you know, this could go on for a long time, but I think now this burden of debt, which is pretty high for a country with China's income per head, income per head is still only about Ten and a half, eleven thousand dollars dollars even though in some, obviously, cities like Shanghai or Beijing or Shenzhen, you know, it's like Portugal uh, yeah. in terms of income per head. But that's exceptional, really. So mm-hmm. anyway, in a nutshell, the burden of debt, it, it's reached a tipping point now where I don't think it's going to blow up like Lehman's blew up. I mean, okay. it's not going to happen that way, I don't think, because, you know, because the government controls all the actors and the liabilities can be parceled around and the assets can be taken on and sold and so on. But it's a bit like, more like Japan, since you mentioned it, because Japan had a domestic debt crisis in 1989. And it took them 20 years, basically, to get over it. And it coincided, not coincidentally, with their aging population. So guess what? Here we are in 2021. China has a monster domestic debt problem, and it's got a monster demographic problem as well. So these are two of the, what I call the red flags, you know, which are confronting China in the next 10 years and beyond.
0: Well, what are the other red flags?
3: The, well, I'd say there are two others, at least. One is productivity. So this, again, is not something I would say that is unique to China, because we all have the challenge of finding the holy grail, which is how on earth do we get productivity to rise again? With this, all this new technology, you know, is it just kind of disappearing down a black hole? Or are we just being kind of overambitious in imagining that that productivity gain will come through much sooner than it's likely to? But the Chinese are looking for that. And uh, I think they're going to find it more difficult because historically, if you go back to 1978, so this is after Mao and after the Gang of Four, So when China began to, as uh, Deng Xiaoping put it, reform and open up, China's productivity growth kind of surged in cahoots with liberalizing reform as they gave the private sector more, you know, as they loosened up the reins on the private sector, you know, the private sector took off and, and and it took off. So they created a private sector. They created a housing market from a housing welfare system. Uh, they joined the World Trade Organization and eventually, as we know, became the world's biggest trading c- country. So all of these things basically were associated with productivity growth. And now productivity growth has basically run, ag- run aground. Yeah, And um, they can't do the things in the future that they did in the past because you can't do th- some things you can't do twice. Once you've put all your kids into secondary school, that's it. You've done it. Yes. Once you've basically taken all the surplus labor out of the countryside, And put it into urban high productivity manufacturing. You do that once, but you can't do it a second time. You can only join the WTO once, and so on and so forth. So they need to find a new model. And I think the Chinese government recognizes this. My issue with this is that I don't think they really are willing or able to accept the political consequences of what we think that model requires. They think they can do it with state directed growth and state enterprises in the commanding heights and most probably Western trained economists would say good luck with that
0: <laughs> yeah you've done it once but they, they have done it once that's the interesting thing and and is there a sort of a, is there a sort of a notion that you know the Asians whether you take Japan Korea is a very very good example uh, China and and now increasingly you know Vietnam laos all those all, the, all those poorer Asian countries that they can actually do the state trick for three or four decades that they can orchestrate from the top, they can have state-sanctioned companies, they can have, they can have the command economy, it can work. And it kind of is, it's a, it's a challenge to our view, which is, oh, you need this sort of representative democracy and democracy aligned with capitalism. And they're saying, well, maybe, maybe we don't.
3: Well, that's an interesting, it is a very, I mean, it's a, it's a key point as well as an interesting point. And I think that the the sort of the, the role of state enterprises in the Asian region and Asian economy is obviously quite different from what our experience is in Europe, though perhaps not in France, if you see what I mean, yep. but but generally speaking, it is different, and there is much more connectivity between state enterprises, the state and private firms than we would recognize, okay, so This, in and of itself, is not an argument to say that it can't work, because we know that from Asia, the the experience of a lot of Asian countries, it, it can work and does work. What's different about China, I think, is the governance system, which is absolutely key. So, Just parallel to this discussion, by the way, I should have mentioned it earlier, but I think I can bring it in here. One of the things that China's leaders used to speak about a few years ago, but they've stopped doing that now, is the danger of China falling into what people call the middle income trap, which is basically countries like Brazil, Argentina, perhaps Chile, perhaps Malaysia. But these are countries that basically grow out of poverty, they achieve a certain level of income, and then something happens. And then they get stuck. they They get stuck. And most political economists think that that's really about institutions. What happens to the institutions that are supposed to be able to make you and me and everybody else work more productively in the things that we do? So this is about law, education, commerce, regulation, competition, loads of other things sure. that basically, you know, contribute. So the problem, I think, with with Xi Jinping's China, wasn't the case before Xi Jinping, but it has been the case since he came to power, is that his governance system is basically a throwback now to the way things used to be before Deng Xiaoping. It's much more controlling, much more totalitarian. I use the word totalitarian rather than authoritarian, because I think there's a big difference, and much more even hostile in a way towards private firms. So very briefly, you know, since November 2020, there's been a blizzard of regulation in China, quite out of the blue. I think people didn't really see this coming. And um, it's, it's not against state firms, but only against private firms. It's not against all private firms, but it's against private firms in the new economy. So any firms that are big in digitization, software, cloud computing, algorithms, data storage and privacy, these are the company internet firms, yeah. media firms. These are the firms really that are kind of in the in the crosshairs. And it's basically almost as though the government is trying to take them over but from the inside. They don't want to nationalize it. They don't want to, you know, do anything as overt as that. Yeah. But they are forcing a compliance and obedience from private firms to align with the state's or the party's objectives, which is not the way that it has been for the last 40 years. So if you just take
0: this as the inflection point, so you've had an opening economy, you've had a growing economy, you've had an opening sense of, you know, you can do what you want, you can... Be what you are, etc. What you want, and now we've seen the clampdown on tennis players, on K-pop stars, and all this sort of thing. And kind of a culture war being orchestrated from the very, very top. Mm. Where do you think this leaves us? Like, what's the next couple of years? I mean, what's your what's your sense of where it's going to go?
3: Well, uh, you know, it's almost like every year is an important political year in China. Uh, some, there's always something happening. This year, we had the centenary of the Communist Party, which was celebrated in. In June or July of uh, 2021. Next year is the 20th Party Congress, which happens in November. These things happen every five years. So the significance of the 20th Party Congress is that it'll be the first Congress since Mao at which the incumbent president I mean, we call him president. The Chinese don't really attach any kind of significance to that. He's the general secretary of the Communist Party. That's the source of his power, not his presidential status. But let's, for argument's sake here, just let's let's call him President Xi. Yeah. So for the first time since Mao, he will basically be crowned for a third term. This hasn't happened since 1978, when Deng Xiaoping basically put some blue water between, you know, the the party and procedure. And when there was an orderly transition for succession, yes. there is now no plan for succession, as far as we know. So this makes Xi Jinping very powerful. It also makes China politically and potentially politically more unstable because Absolutely, if anything yeah. goes wrong,
0: you've got just it's one guy fault. at
3: the top. It's the kind of this, it's, yeah.
0: it's almost this sort of. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's like the Stalin model. You basically get rid of it everybody is. around you, and then it's just you.
3: It's, it's and your uh, sycophantic you know, advisors who are dead scared of you. Absolutely. It's, I'm glad you mentioned that because actually it is a reversion, not just politically, but also in terms of economic management too, which is my kind of beef really. It's sort of a reversion to a kind of a, a much more orthodox Leninist model of governance, where the party rules everything. And there's a kind of a personality cult around the leader, which is fine when everything is fine, but yeah. it's not fine when something isn't fine. So 2020. Two will be the year of this Congress. I mean, everything that you see going on in China today and in the next six to nine months is basically preparation for this Congress in November 2022. And then Xi Jinping could then be uh, the leader of China or of the party for as long as he as long as he wants, or as long as his health holds out, or as long as his enemies remain below the parapet. I mean, so it could be a long time, it might not be, it depends. But I think that you asked me, where's China going? What, once this 2022 kind of 20th Congress is out of the way, I think that, um, you know, the 2020s will be a much more difficult challenge for, for China, both internally because of the economic headwinds, which I think are blowing, but also this is the harshest external environment that the Chinese have faced really since the Mao era. Yeah, um, I mean, decoupling, you know, self-reliance, which is what the Chinese call it. The pushback, so pushback certainly in countries which are surveyed by the Pew organization because, you know. Yes, it's interesting.
0: To- China's become ridiculously unpopular. I, I noticed this yeah. like four or five years ago. Everyone said China's a force for good. It's it's a trade partner, It's etc. And now it's like, no, actually post-COVID. And I'm sure COVID has got something to do with it. It's, uh, well, you know, I'm not that sure about China. The people are actually beginning to to worry about the Chinese state, its place in the world, what it's going to do.
3: I think so. I I think what, I mean, I think the pandemic has been the catalyst, David, as you say. Um, And it's partly because of the kind of hubris with which the Chinese got on top of the problem in using their own methods, but then mocked the rest of us not sympathised, but mocked and criticised. And people are very familiar now with the phrase wolf warrior diplomacy, which is the sort of bullying, almost, attitude that they've taken towards the UK, Australia, even more. Much more so with the Aussies. Much more so with the Aussies. Yeah. And they've much more to lose. And Taiwan, you know. And I think people also are belatedly beginning to come round to the idea that this is not just a kind of a big power spat the like of which we had maybe with the Japanese in the 1980s. But this is really, this is about something, I know it's not very fashionable sometimes, but it is about values and beliefs. And you just look at the current row about the the, the Chinese tennis player, Peng Shui. I mean, obviously the the whole kind of fuss at the moment is really about, is she safe? Well, nobody really knows if she's safe. I mean, she's appeared in videos. She appeared kind of a a conversation with the head of the International Olympic uh, Committee. Uh, but she's obviously alive. That's that's great. You know, we all want to know that she's safe. But actually, her family's there. She's there. She's probably under a lot of pressure. Whatever happened to the original complaint was, the, was sexual harassment or rape by a, by a senior, by a Chinese, senior official.
0: Chinese official. Yeah. No,
3: that will. I mean, as things stand, that was never going to get addressed, really. And that's never going to see so, the light of day. No. No. I think people rightly say, that's just not right, you know. But it is symptomatic. It's not new, but I think the awareness is new. I think that's the thing, George.
0: What do you think is going to over the next twelve months, eighteen months, whatever? How do you think the Taiwanese issue is going to play out,
3: Gosh, I mean, my central—I mean, I'm not a expert by, and you know, I'm not, certainly sure. not a military expert by any means. But my my base case really is that I think the bullying of Taiwan will continue unabated. And I think the Taiwanese, they know they mustn't basically goad China by, you know, saying that they want to become independent and so on. I think the Taiwanese will probably continue to reach out to other countries and say, we'd like to be your friends and we want you to be ours. I don't think the Chinese, I mean, there's a lot of kind of war talk on Chinese social media. But I think it's, I do think it's exaggerated. I don't think the Chinese want to go to war. I think that Xi Jinping wants to have as part of his legacy, what he calls the reunification, that itself is a contentious word, but the reunification of the renegade province, as they as they call it. But, you know, on a 10-year view, you can't really tell always that logic will prevail. Logic would suggest, we, you know, nuclear weapons, you know, why would anybody want to risk that on either side? And I kind of think in my most moments that actually that that will prevail but you never know so I, I it's going to remain a flashpoint for as far out into the future as we can dare see i think george magnus
0: it's been Listen, a pleasure to talk to you, George. You might've even talked yourself into the first 11, if you fancy it, on the China podcast side, global economics, you know, you could expand your Irish audience enormously. (laughs) It would (laughs) be a pleasure. Which I know has always (laughs) been an objective of yours. No, George, (laughs) this was great to talk to you again. Thanks very
3: much, David.
1: Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away.
2: So so what George is really saying there is that it's all eyes on China for this 2022 congress conference whatever.
0: Well, you know the communists love a good conference. They <laughs> love a conference, right? And they also like a date in the calendar. I've always noticed this about single party governments. Mm. tend to always pick like a date and it doesn't have to be communist It's like it's like the people in, in Dubai with the expo twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's a it's a sort of a it's a slightly between a, it's like an adolescent view. Right. It's like oh, it's my birthday coming up and we know you know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like children. Sorry. As as they dismiss half the world's population. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say But do you know what I mean? Like there is a yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. there is a yeah. sort of like a shake with his son talking about expo twenty twenty two or something like that. Yeah. But actually you're right. It is kind of adolescent, but let's focus on it. So George is saying they're going to frame everything in the next 12 months in the context of this significant 20th Party Congress.
2: Sounds ominous
0: to me. It does. It also means that nothing bad will happen. So if you think about it, until then.
2: Until then, yeah. Yeah, Because because she wants to
0: get in, he wants it to be a coronation. This is not like a vote. This is going to be you. This is a coronation that I am now going to take on the third presidential term. Yeah. Now, what fascinates me is that life is really complex, right? The world is really complex. And with the best will in the world, it's absolutely impossible to forecast even tomorrow, let alone a year out. Yeah. So it does seem that the underlying strains and bubbles and toils and troubles, to use the opening line of Macbeth. Indeed. Okay. (laughs) These things are going to not undermine, but are going to change China. And I think that the idea that China is at the end of the road, of this road, and has to pick another road, is going to be fantastic because we'll just leave it on this one thing, is that when a country, so if a country has an agricultural population, then they transfer that population into production right? Productivity goes up because by definition, you're basically adding machines to people, Mm. right? But then if you move to services, the service economy, which is usually the next phase, and we already see that a lot of manufacturing industry is going to Vietnam, going to Laos, going to all these poorer places, right? Tends, typically, productivity dries up, falls in services. Mm. And the reason it falls in services is it's very hard to quantify service productivity. If productivity falls, it means that debt burden that you're talking about mm. becomes almost impossible to pay. And then 10
2: trillion yeah, at the moment is just shocking.
0: And then what they'll do is because there won't be a day of reckoning because the government owns everything, they'll try and hide some of that debt. You know, it's 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 the day it's what they call the delay and pray attitude to debt. Right, right. you just try to push it out, kick the can down the road as much as you possibly can. And I suspect that's what's going to happen to China. That the growth rate will slow down, a la Japan. As George said, it's coincident with the population falling in falling terms of well, peaking, yeah. right? So this is the big fear about China was always it would get old before it got rich, okay? Because the population, because the one mm. the one child policy. So I think if that is the background noise, and it seems to me to be the case, that what typically tends to happen is countries that are flying along economically don't ever need to do anything else. But countries that start to have problems economically need to deflect attention onto other issues that deflect people's attentions. And usually that's nationalism, skirmishes, a heightened sense of insecurity. So I think that we're probably in for a couple of years where China is no longer the open, benign country that everyone thought it was, but could turn into something far more malignant. Just at the end, listen, thank you, as always, to our Patreon supporters. We couldn't do this without you. And if you'd like to follow us on Patreon or join us, it's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. And there you learn the course, reading lists, ideas, all sorts of extra stuff that hopefully will give you a better grasp of this bizarre thing we call economics.
2: Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's
0: Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict.
1: In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively. But not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more.